I think that we all start practicing with a goal in mind. Certainly, that was why I started practicing. I had a goal in mind. I wanted to be enlightened. And I wanted, and that was at the beginning. I told you this story before, you know, but after six years of beating my head against the wall, I realized that what I really wanted was to be free of suffering. <laughs> but anyway, we all come, I think, to Buddhism with some goal in mind, to be free to, of suffering, to be awake, to be a different, better person, right? And that's very common for people in the United States because we in the United States are trained to have goals. And in fact, you know, if we don't have a goal in our society, you don't feel like you're a part of it. You know, everybody is doing their best to get better, more, you know, whatever it is. We, have, we definitely have goals and we definitely work toward our goals. And um, kind of funny, really, when you think about it. We're like Alice in Wonderland. You know, in Alice in Wonderland, she's running and running and running to try to stay in the same place. She's running and running and running. It's kind of like that in our society. You know, we make all this effort, we run and run, and we have this goal, and we, we never get there. We're always, you know, the goal is always out there like a carrot on a stick for a, a rabbit, or like a rabbit on a machine that goes round and round for a ground, for, for a greyhound. Have you seen those races? They put a rabbit on a machine that, that is attached to the ring that the dogs run around, and they're chasing this rabbit. <laughs> anyway, why is it so funny to me? It's funny, I guess to me it's funny because it's so silly, you know? It's fraught, you know, and it's, and it's very painful, and it brings a lot of this grasping, brings a lot of suffering for people, so maybe it shouldn't be so much of a joke, you know. But if you stand back just a little bit and you notice what it is that we're doing, our whole culture is doing, you know, if it's not terribly sad, it's kind of funny. And I'd rather think about it as funny today than as terribly tragic. <laughs> Anyway, Dogen, who's the person I want to talk about today, Dogen is, uh, I think probably most of you know by now, uh, one of the major teachers for our school in Soto Zen. Um, he's adamant about us not having goals. And in Zen, um, the, the advice that we're given, even in Zazen, it basically, once the mind is stable in Zazen, the basic instruction that you're giving is to not do anything. So lots of people come to Zen, and even if they, even if they begin to understand what this not doing is about, secretly, back there, <laughs> you're laughing, you understand? <laughs> secretly back there, we think if we really don't do, if we if we're really get this not doing, what's going to happen is we're going to get our goal, right? <laughs> right? It's very subtle. 
But it is, you know, very sweetly who we are. It's very kind of sweet. Anyway, for Dogen, this is really not our way of practice because he is going to explain to us and keep reinforcing for us that practice and realization are exactly the same, are one. And in that understanding, we can have some intimacy with ourselves and our life. What he's trying to help us do is to surrender 100% in in the activity of the moment as realization, as our true nature. So, give you some background. When Dogen was practicing studying Tendai religion in Japan, he was taught that Buddha nature, our true self, was inherent in us, that we were inherently awake. And Dogen grasps this idea, and he makes it into an object. By doing that, he thinks that Buddha nature is real, and it exists somewhere independently. It was a misunderstanding. Tendai says that Buddha nature is not separate from practice, but that practice is indispensable. But even if you think that the that Buddha nature is indispensable, that that practice is indispensable, if practice is indispensable, then you're still separate from Buddha nature, and Buddha nature is still a thing out there. And if if practice is indispensable then how can you say that that is that we are endowed with it, that that is our original nature? There's that separation. So Dogen noticed this separation. He was really struck by it. And he was struck by it because he himself made Buddha nature into an object. So in Mahayana Buddhism, Buddha nature and practice are one. But they're not a. Th- but they're, but Buddha nature is not a thing, and we have to. It's a really important point that it's not a thing. So because Dogen made idealized it, he doubted that practice was necessary, and so he came up with his question, the question that we've been talking about off and on for a while. And he put it this way. If we have Buddha nature, and and his way of thinking about it was, if we have Buddha nature, which already is a sense of separation, then why do we practice? Why isn't everything we do Buddha nature awakened practice? It's a good question. can imagine him in this predicament and thinking about it and his deep sincerity, just like the Buddha in a way, you know, his deep sincerity in trying to understand and be in touch with with truth. He's a person who really wants to touch the base of human existence. And, 
And he cares about it so much that he's willing to take a harrowing boat ride, which was this trip to China that he took, to find an answer to his, to his question. And, you know, actually in the same way, in a way you can think about it, in the same way that we are called to do the same thing, if we're really clear about what our priorities are. You know, it's said, and I think I've said this before, that, I'm, and anyway, people know this, that whatever you give your attention to, that's what grows, obviously, right? If you, if you, if you give your attention to practicing whatever you want to practice, that will grow, right? And whatever you spend your time doing is really what you value. And it's a hard thing for us to, to really face because so often we're, in some way, sometimes not engaged with what we're doing for work or we're not, but we spend a lot of time doing it anyway. You know, or we watch a lot of TV, which is why I don't have a TV. You know, or we, we, do, we spend our time doing things that we may or may not actually deeply feel is our priority, but we do them anyway. And so it becomes our our value, that's what we, it becomes what we value. So we're asked, I think, and we need to ask ourselves to clarify what our own priorities are, and then if we have the courage, or if we have the faith, I don't know, can we adjust our lives? Can we change our lives? in a way that is in accord with what we say we actually do value, what our priorities make, make what we value our priority. It's really a difficult question for people who live in the world. It's hard. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, sometimes that's the case. Mm-hmm. And I think, though, if you have a sense of your intention, that even though your life right now is going in that direction, if your intention is over here, little by little, the choices you make as you keep going will kind of go this way toward your priority. So if right now you can't make a change, that's fine. Totally fine. But as long as you keep in touch with what you're deep intention is, I think eventually that will be help, be clarified. So he goes to China and he meets two Tenzos. These are in the stories that I've told. He, he meets two wonderful Tenzos. And, and in those meetings, uh, he tells them some stories and so on. He has these interactions with them. And he clarifies his own question. They help him clarify that question. And they also, by the way, um, help him understand the value of kitchen work, <laughs> which we value also, as I keep telling you. And, um, and they also point him. He finds his teacher with their help. He finds his teacher, Ru Jing. And he goes to Ru Jing. And he practices with him not very long. 
and he has his awakening, and he clarifies his own question. He has an answer to his own question, and this is what he says. This is in the Bendawa, one of the fascicles in the Shilagansa. He says, there is not even an inch of separation between Buddha nature and existence. Buddha nature is present in or as everyone, but unless a person practices it, it is not manifest. And unless there is realization, it is not attained. So this is what the story at the end of the Genjo Koan is saying that I've also talked about, but I like it. So I'm going to talk about it again in this context. Bao Che was fanning himself. Bao Che was a teacher. So think, uh, for some reason, I think of him as a very big, wide, I guess maybe because he's drawn that way, I don't know. Anyway, and he's fanning himself, and a monk approached and said, Master, the wind is everywhere. So Buddha nature is everywhere. Why do you fan yourself? And he says, although you understand that Buddha that the Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, Bauche replies, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. Well, what is the meaning of it reaching everywhere? asked the monk. And the master just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. This really lovely koan is saying that Buddha nature is indeed everywhere, but not as a thing, right? And because it is everywhere, we can realize it. But in order to do that, you have to practice. Okay? So it's just like Kobe in the LA Lakers. Kobe Bryant, right? He was endowed with this ability of being a really terrific basketball player. But unless he practiced, he wouldn't make some of these incredible, you know, behind the back and over his left shoulder and the rest of it, (laughs) moves that he does on the basketball court. So it's kind of in that same way. Because we are Buddha nature, because we are Buddha nature, we can practice and realize. It's not like What we do isn't already Buddha nature. It is. But without making some, for most people, without making some effort as practice, it isn't realized. It doesn't realize itself as what we are. So the way Dogen thinks about it is, usually we think about time, practice, because practice is in time, linear time. You know, usually time is going along, passing, and we do things, we, we do activities in time going along. And the, usually the way we think about realization is here we are going along, and then all of a sudden, poop, we have realization. That's the way we think about it. But Dogen does this really wonderful thing, and he does his, his practice going along in time, but realization, which is beyond time, it doesn't, It doesn't have time. It's not linear. It's not bound. It's unbound. 
beyond time, beyond location, then what he does is he goes like this. Here's, here's linear, horizontal going along, and realization is on each moment. I mean, it's incredible understanding. So on each moment, there is both at that intersection, on, which is each moment of activity, on that intersection there is practice and realization, always practice realization. Which is why he really emphasizes 100% activity. Because what our practice is in Zen is the realization, is the, I don't know, realization, whatever, um, of Buddha nature, our true nature, with each activity. And the reason why he comes to this, which I also think is kind of interesting, is because both practice and realization of Buddha nature are empty. Or you can say impermanent. He uses impermanent in the sense of permanent change and uh, change and stillness. I think it's just amazing, his understanding, you know. It's very deep and wide. But it comes down to our practice, which is simply complete devotion to what we are doing in that moment. And, and the consequences of, of understanding in that way are profound for us in our lives right now today. Because what he's done is he's connected the means and the end. So means and end are the same for Dogen. And this is profoundly important, I think, in, in, in our modern life today. So I'll tell you another story. Um, this story is interesting for me because um, it's about my uh, story about my life, and and lately I'm understanding that um, when I talk about some of these stories in my life, for most other people now they're history, <laughs> which is really a strange feeling. You see, you'll see. When you start telling stories and somebody else thinks that it's their history, it's very strange. So this is history for most of you, I think. But some of you will remember. So in 1964, I was 20. 1964, I was 20. And... Um, And, oh, it's hard to talk about. And um, there was, civil rights was going on, civil rights was, was happening. And, um, it's interesting. My heart is pounding. I'm, I'm, uh, my arms are, uh, I'm afraid, there's fear. 
Um, in, um, hold on, let me try to start again. So in 1964, the, there was a civil rights movement was going on um, in many places. It, of course, um, ah, interesting. Um, there are many heroes in um, the civil rights movement, many of whom we don't hear about, that are just regular, mostly African-American people who did things that were unbelievably courageous. And one of the people um, who to me is like, I call him Saint Bob, <laughs> Robert Moses was one of those people. And he was in, um, involved in a, uh, an organization called SNCC, which stood for the Student Nonviolent, she is, yeah, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And they were in the South trying to register voters. And uh, in particular, SNCC was active in Mississippi. And um, he'd been doing that for a while. And nobody in the United States was hearing about it. But um, and one of the, uh, it was difficult. You know, They were doing things that were not um, acceptable in the South at that time. And, um, and it was dangerous, and people were being hurt, and nobody in the United States was un knowing about this. So SNCC did this brilliant thing, which says a lot about the horribleness of the whole situation, including today, is that he realized that unless young white people were involved and probably hurt, that there weren't going to be any news coverage of what was happening there. So they had this great idea, and they went to the top schools in the country. They went to Harvard and Stanford and uh, MIT and so on and so forth. And they also came to the University of California, Berkeley, which is where I was in school. And they explained to us what was happening, and they asked for people to come to Mississippi to help register people. And um, it was very compelling. And at the time, it was really easy to see, right, especially young people, for young people, it's very easy to see right and wrong. They're very clear about these kinds of things, which is why I think older people should really listen to young people. And of course, young people don't have the nuances and the, sometimes the depth that comes with complexity, understanding the complexity that older people have. So young people should listen to older people. But anyway, um, so they explained it, and it was very clear. It, uh, so some people, um, not a lot of people, but some responded. Incredibly disproportionate number of Jewish people went to um, be trained in nonviolent, in nonviolent, uh, nonviolence. And after that training, we're going to go to Mississippi and register people and build communities, 
structures and teach reading and so on and so forth. And um, because I decided to go, I started thinking about this ends, means and ends, means and ends, and and I'm trying to understand, even though the training was very realistic. So I was trying to understand in, in what situation could I actually really still be nonviolent? You know, I mean, what if a, a child is being hurt? What if, you know, you were with a boyfriend in a doctor's office and young men came to get him and beat him up? What if? What if you had just finished building this community center all summer and people were driving by with rifles and shooting it up? What if parents were asked to send, you know, little four and five-year-old kids to, to integrate a school all by themselves? So when, when, when facing these kinds of questions, it's very difficult to, to, to decide that what you value is nonviolence <coughs> rather than responding with violence, meeting it with violence. So I d- but I decided, I, I very... Um, thoroughly decided at that time that the only response that was appropriate if I wanted violence to end ever was to not be violent myself. It went very deep. I decided not to be violent inside myself to myself and not be violent outside for other people. And I found at that time a saying of the Buddha from the Dhammapada, which is now, I think, very... uh, people hear this. And he says, the Buddha says, the only way to respond to violence is this way. Hatred never ends through hatred. Only by non-hate or love alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. So we have to decide, I think, for ourselves where we stand, means and ends, practice realization, bound or free, right? It's on each activity that we make that, that decision. There is no such thing as an enlightened person, only enlightened activity. On each moment, with each activity bound or free, 
separate or connected. Hate or love. It is Buddha's activity, but until we practice, it is not realized. And if it is not realized, it is not manifest. There is only now and only this activity, which is time, which is beyond time. This is our human life. So, so we each have to, you know, have to decide. And, 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 And we each are doing the best we can, always. Always, always. But like I was saying to Maria, if we're at least in touch with our intention, little bit by little bit by little bit, we slowly, like Suzuki Roshi says, our practice is like walking in the midst, in, in, the, in, the, in a mist, in a mist. As we slowly just keep walking in a mist, little bit by little bit, we eventually get drenched. And that is our practice, Soto Zen practice. Full attention to each activity and faith that we are Buddha. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.